I lauri lantar lassi surine, ignaru noti narderra. I strayed out of thought and time. Yeah, I should have done things a lot good, you know. I'm Katie Marquette, and you're listening to On Fairy Stories. Do you feel any sense of guilt at all? that as a philologist, as a professor of English language, with which you were concerned with the factual sources of language, you devoted a large part of your life to a fictional thing. No, no, I should have done language a lot of good. You know. <laughs> no, I, I, no, no, there's quite a lot of linguistic wisdom. I don't feel any guilt complex about the Lord of the Rings, as many people have said. Now we know what you wasted, wasted the last 14 years upon. You can now get on and complete some of those professional tasks which you neglected, and so immediately after I died, I was more busy working at my proper things than I have been for a long while. Yes. There's an autumnal quality throughout the whole of The Lord of the Rings. There's a sense of continuous change. Each character feels himself to be part of a story that's forever continuing. You, in one case, um, a character says the story is continuing, but I seem to have dropped out of it. Yeah. Um, however, everything's declining and it's fading, at least towards the end of the Third Age. Every choice tends to the upsetting of some tradition. Now, this seems to me to be somewhat like Tennyson's The Old Order Changeth, Yielding Place to New, and God Fulfills Himself in Many Ways. Where is God in the Lord of the Rings? He mentioned once or twice. Is he the one above the Elder? The one, yeah, the one, yeah. But they really are sailing back to a to a world of memory. Do you, in fact, believe yourself, not in the context of this book, but believe in the sense of straightforward, strict belief, in the Eldar or in some form of um, governing... Well, the Eldar must be distinguished the Eldar, only... Uh... The Valar, I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um... Are you, in fact, a theist? Oh, I'm a, I'm a Roman Catholic. Devout Roman Catholic, yes. But uh, I don't know about angelology. Yes, I should have thought almost certainly. I, I mean, they, they, yes, certainly. Well, they seem to me to be the saints, or the equivalent of the saints. Well, they are in some way, yes. They, <laughs> they take the place in this book of the uh, things which in, in many evil and older legends you have the gods and, and the invocation to the saints, which are lesser angels. Yes, they do. <laughs> oh, well, of course, obviously many people have noticed that the, the, being to the Lady of the Queen of the Stars, which is almost like Roman Catholic of Invocations of Our Lady. Do you wish to be remembered chiefly by your writings on philology, on other, other matters, or by the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit? I shouldn't have thought that there was a choice in if I remembered at all. It would be by the Lord of the Rings, I'd take it. J.R.R. Tolkien, the famous author of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, had a lot to say on fairy stories. Fairy contains many things besides elves and fays, and besides dwarves, witches, trolls, giants, or dragons. It holds the seas, the sun, the moon, the sky, and the earth, and all the things that are in it. Tree and bird, water and stone, wine and bread, and ourselves, mortal men, when we are enchanted. I wanted to start this podcast with the words of Tolkien. 
especially this interview from 1960, where he is asked about how he feels about wasting time on the Lord of the Rings. You can imagine that Tolkien, the philologist, a professor at a university, a professional man, um, very, you know, put together. Uh, he really kind of looked and acted like a hobbit. I love that you can hear him lighting his pipe in that interview. <laughs> well, you can imagine that not everyone understood uh, this sort of obsession he had, this whole world, this fantasy world that he had created. Here's this grown man talking about elves and fairies and creating characters and writing these elaborate stories um, and it sounds like maybe neglecting some of his uh, professional tasks in the process. Um, <laughs> I was just thinking how in this time when uh, we ha maybe have some more time on our hands than we're used to, I'm recording this on April 20th in 2020, which is during uh, quarantine time. Uh, during COVID-19 and I think a lot of people have a lot more free time on their hands and I've noticed um, one very encouraging thing which is that people are actually doing really beautiful things with that free time. They're writing books, they're going on Facebook live and reading poetry, they are writing songs, they're playing instruments, uh, they're reading books, they're watching good movies and talking about them and it really just emphasized to me how much, how important art is. So I wanted to create something where we could honor that wasted time with art. Um, I also think of Pope Francis saying to waste time with your children and with your family, that that wasted time is actually what life is all about. So I want to explore myths and legends and really good stories that say something very important about the human condition. So I'm going to be looking at Irish folklore, uh, Selkies and giants and the Celtic otherworld of Tirnanog. I'm going to look at Greek mythology and Scandinavian mythology, all these things that um, Tolkien himself loved. He loved these myths and legends because they said something deep and true about the world. Just the way he said that so many characters in The Lord of the Rings were also reflecting true theological realities that he really believed in in his Roman Catholic faith. He felt like stories helped you enter a greater story. He talked about uh, the eucatastrophe. This was a word he, he coined known as the good catastrophe. Quoting here again from fairy stories, the eucatastrophe is the sudden joyous turn for there is no true end to any fairy tale. This joy, which is one of the things which fairy stories can produce supremely well, is not essentially escapist. In its fairy tale or other world setting, it is a sudden and miraculous grace, never to be counted on to recur. It does not deny the existence of discatastrophe, of sorrow and failure. The possibility of these is necessary to the joy of deliverance. It denies, in the face of much evidence, universal final defeat, and gives us a fleeting glimpse of joy, capital J, joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. So I found a lot of comfort in in these old stories. Um, that's also the reason I started um, with a little fiddle tune I played there, uh, which you probably know, it's called Scarborough Fair. 
I wanted to start with that because Scarborough Fair is a really, really old melody. It's from the Middle Ages. And some of the meaning behind that song has been lost. You know, we, we hum along to the Simon and Garfunkel version and it's a beautiful song. We love the tunes, but we actually don't know a lot of the meanings. Some of that has been lost. And the story in the song is about a man trying to attain his true love. And the herbs that he mentioned would have had a special significance to anybody who heard that song uh, back in medieval times. The herbs mentioned are virtues. So parsley was comfort, sage was strength, rosemary was love, and thyme was courage. So this song really exemplifies how we can hear something and we know it's beautiful, but maybe we don't fully understand it. And that's also something really beautiful about myths and legends and these old fairy stories is that we know that they are speaking to something true and beautiful, but we maybe don't understand the language. We've lost some of these illusions. So I also want to explore some of that, go into the history and just really, really dive into these stories. Um, I also think these are beautiful virtues to be contemplating right now, comfort, strength, love and courage. So that's what this is going to be all about. So maybe people one time had the power to see what's hidden from us. In the hills, there's something to be seen, I'm sure of that and on the sea. That's a quote from an old fisherman in Ireland. He's quoted in David Thompson's strange and beautiful book, The People of the Sea, Celtic Tales of the Seal Folk. This is one of the most unique, puzzling, and beautiful books I've ever read. My husband finds my newfound interest in Selkies, or the Seal Folk of the Celtic Isles, somewhat amusing. I guess it's sort of a strange interest, and I don't really know why these Selkies appeal to me so much. I watched this beautiful animated movie um, by an Irish animation studio uh, called The Song of the Sea, and I was just really taken in by this story of a woman, a wife and a mother, who gives birth to her second child and then returns to the sea uh, after finding her seal, her seal skin, and she goes back to the ocean. And there's sort of this whole other world of fairies and dreams and myths that's lurking under the surface um, of the world there in Ireland. And these stories just really struck me as very beautiful and very sad, um, sad in a good way, you know what I mean? Um, just, just really haunting. So I went about looking for books on Selkies, and this book by David Thompson kept coming up, The People of the Sea. It's considered a classic of ethnography, really, of uh, capturing a time that has really disappeared now. Uh, Seamus Haney wrote the introduction to the edition I have. Um, the book was originally published back in the 1950s. Uh, David Thompson himself also had a hard time describing his deep interest in the folklore around the Grey Seals. He said, quote, I don't think of the stories that way as lies or truth. I like to hear them, that's all. Selkie stories in general are largely sad, violent, and absurd. Some say the Grey Seals are fallen angels. Some say they're the souls of drowned sailors. There are stories of Selkie kings and their human children. And there are many beautiful stories of selkie women who find their seal skin and return to the sea, but continue to leave fish for their human children and husband on the shore. 
there's no sort of uniform mythology uh, to Selkie stories. Sometimes uh, there were these really funny stories of uh, seals who would give rides to men to the market uh, to go get a beer and then would come up on land as a man and have a few pints with them before returning to the sea. Um, the whole book is sort of like a memory you can't really place. And the rhythms are of a really lost way of life, a life where you lived uh, with the motions of the of the sea and of the seasons out on these sort of dramatic gray cliffs of Ireland. So it's as much a collection of Selkie tales as a record of the Isle folk who told these stories. Uh, they can really only be understood uh, in a society that lived so closely to the earth. The sea and its inhabitants, uh, these really human eyes, they talk a lot about the human eyes of the seals and how seals are known to weep uh, and to mourn their dead, to mourn their their mates when they're killed and their and their children. Um, they, they haunted fishermen for generations. To give you an idea of the superstitious world of this uh, society, it was seen as bad luck to save a drowning man because God in the ocean had claimed him and you didn't interfere with the will of the sea. So selkies, these gray seals, represented a bridge between men and the ocean because they could live both on land and in the water. Uh, the Selkie became a conduit for the fears and dreams of these fishermen. And Thompson takes us into an Ireland filled with traveling storytellers and old black houses, an Ireland where every action had a prayer, a prayer for raking the fire in the evening, an Ireland where myths and memories merged. Uh, you never really knew what was true and what wasn't. Uh, there was a sense that perhaps the world was changing and the magic was leaving the land, but there was a time, and it wasn't so long ago, when these strange and magical things truly did happen. And uh, near the end of the book, Thompson recounts some of the old Selkie songs, and he describes how the seals seemed to know the old Gaelic melodies and how they even answered and finished the ballads of singers on the beach. And you have to ask, did the old songs come from the seals? Did the fishermen perhaps learn the songs from the Selkies? But now the songs are mostly lost. There's sort of a fragmented um, record of them. And there's no back and forth anymore between men and seals and between men and the sea. So a lot of the language and the stories are being lost. So it's a really sad, beautiful book uh, that really captures some of the strange, imaginative stories about Selkies. So I thought um, I would recount uh, one, of, one of the strangest of the Selkie stories that's included in this collection, uh, David Thompson's collection. So in this story, there is a fisherman and he has three sons and they hear three knocks on the door. And in a lot of this Irish mythology, uh, hearing three knocks was always sort of an ominous thing. It meant maybe death itself had come to your door. But they open the door and they see a man in white on a white horse. And he tells them that when they go out fishing tonight, they need to make sure to take a knife, a hook, and an axe. And uh, then he rides off uh, away over the rainy cliffs into the distance. And uh, all the men sort of look at each other and are, you know, think it's a pretty strange thing that just happened. But they said, well, we better take those things. So they get a hook a knife and an axe and they take them out on the ocean with them that night when they go fishing. Now that night there was a terrible terrible storm, one of those just really wild uh, one of those really wild storms that comes out of nowhere and their boat is being rocked and pitched and they're sure they're going to drown 
and this tumultuous giant tidal wave just comes roaring toward them. And one of the sons, just in a moment of just sort of insanity, grabs the hook and throws it into the wave. And it splits the wave in two. And the wave, sort of like a parting of the Red Sea situation, just glides by, um, splits in two and glides by them. And so the next time one of those big tidal waves come, they grab a knife and they throw it into the wave and the same thing happens. And then the same thing happens again with the axe. And then on that last wave, after they've thrown the axe in and they've ridden that last wave out, they're sort of washed up on the shore. And they can see in, in the distance all the sort of broken and shattered pieces of wood from other ships that have not been so lucky. There are a lot of fishermen that died that night clearly out on the ocean. So they go home feeling very lucky to be alive and uh, you know they're drying off and everything and they hear those three knocks again and they look at each other sort of scared and sure enough it's the man dressed in white on his white horse and he tells them I need the three sons who threw the objects into the waves to come with me and uh, they don't question it they clearly have uh, reason now to trust this man so they hop on the back of his horse and they fly away you know like shadow facts or something just off away away at miles and miles and miles but it takes no time at all they know they're traveling immense ground but um, the horse is just sort of flying over the earth and they reach this town and they see it's sort of a gray strange town and all these women are out in the streets dancing and laughing and playing music and there's sort of all these men walking around with this strange look in their eyes and these like just drawn look on their faces and uh, they look just just absolutely ill you know but they're following these women around like in a daze and uh, they, they're clinging to the the man in white on his horse and just sort of looking at each other in horror about where they've ended up and they arrive at one of these old black houses there are no windows on this house and they go up to the door and the man says, you know, I can't go in with you, but you're going to have to go in one at a time and do exactly as they say, do exactly as they say. So you go first. And he's thinking, who's, who's they? And the first son goes in and he walks in and he finds a beautiful woman lying in the bed, looking up at him with a, with a hook right in the middle of her forehead. And she says, you have to take it out. You have to take this hook out of my forehead. And he's absolutely horrified, but he does as she says and takes the hook out. And then he leaves the house. And then the second son comes in and he finds a woman there, a beautiful woman on the bed. And the same situation, it's the knife is right in her forehead. And he went, goes up and pulls it out as she requests. And then the last son goes in and he finds a beautiful woman with an axe in her forehead. And she asks him to take it out. And he learns from her. She says, you know, you were meant to be mine. You were meant to be ours. If you hadn't thrown those into the sea, you would be here with us. And he runs out in horror, thinking how these women could have claimed them in the ocean. And the man in white explains that all the men there in that town are the sailors who drowned, and these are the Selkie women who claimed them. And uh, he tells them, you can never go fishing again. You can never go out on the sea because your souls have been saved because you, you came back and you saved these Selkie women. You saved them by pulling out your weapons, but they're going to be waiting for you in the ocean, so you can never go out to sea again. And they, uh, they went back to their father, and this time the, the journey back took, took it felt like days. You know, It was a long journey that the flying shadow facts moment was over. And they come back and they tell him what happened, and they agree that they will never go out to sea again, and they spend the rest of their life just sitting on the cliffside watching the waves.
So that's an example of a particularly sort of creepy, sulky story. <laughs> but um, they sort of all have that strange, otherworldly quality to them. Um, in this story, the Selkies sort of come across as a, a little manipulative or something, but there's this sort of like, it's not that they're trying to kill people or claim them for the sea, but that there's this sort of longing in them. When they're in the ocean, they long for the land, and when they're on land, they long for the sea. Selkies, like human beings, are split in two. You know, they, they long for a place they can't be, um, like human beings longing for another world, like C.S. Lewis would talk about, and Tolkien would, would talk about how, you know, the human soul is not made for this world, and that the perpetual state of longing we find ourselves in. So the Selkies are in a similar situation, and there's sort of this understanding between the seals and men uh, that, you know, that, that that longing will never be fully fulfilled. And they try to maybe find fulfillment in each other sometimes when uh, men would find a washed up, you know, woman, a beautiful woman on the beach, and he would take her seal skin and they would get married and a lot of times be very happy, um, have children together. Um, but this moment she found her selkie skin, uh, she would return to the sea, even as she's sort of weeping tears for the family she's leaving behind. So there's this sense of longing in these stories. Um, there's a sense of sort of Wuthering Heights uh, romance um, with these dramatic moors and cliffs of Ireland and Scotland and Wales. And I just think that they are so beautiful. So that will wrap up our first episode of On Fairy Stories. I really hope that you enjoyed learning a little bit about the Selkies and some of the great Irish folklore uh, from the old fishermen's villages. I really would recommend David Thompson's book, People of the Sea, if you are interested in learning more, and definitely the animated film, Song of the Sea. So uh, I wish you well. I wish you creativity and beautiful stories. I did want to end with uh, some words of Tolkien just to bookend this first episode here. He wrote uh, in his essay on fairy stories, I propose to speak about fairy stories, though I am aware that this is a rash adventure. Fairy is a perilous land, and in it are pitfalls for the unwary and dungeons for the overbold. And then he also wrote, the recovered thing is not quite the same as the thing never lost. It is often more precious, as grace recovered by repentance is not the same as primitive innocence, but it is not necessarily a poorer or worse state. So I'm proposing that this podcast is going to be about recovering things that we have lost. I think that was really what spoke to me the most about Selkie stories and about myths in general, is that they do feel a little bit like memories. I think that they uh, speak to the rhythms of storytelling that we've lost, and I want to learn more about them and share them with you. So we're going to be recovering things through fairy stories uh, with Tolkien's guidance and lots of other great sub-creators and myth-makers. So thank you so much for listening. Um, my name is Katie Marquette, and you've been listening to On Fairy Stories.
I lauri lanta lassi surine, ignaru noti narderan. I strayed out of thought and time. Yeah, yeah, I've actually done things a lot of good, yeah.